Welcome to the Singapore Management University podcast series, where we feature the latest insights and perspectives from our faculty. Indonesian Chinese, born after 1966, grew up in a restrictive environment that specifically curtailed Chinese language and culture. This was the result of a series of policies administered during the Suharto era from 1965 to 1998. At that time, the Indonesian government closed all Chinese language schools and prohibited the use of Chinese characters in public places, the import of Chinese language publications, and all public forms and expressions of Chinese culture. After the fall of Suharto, Indonesia experienced the reformasi period, in which democratization and the increased visibility of the Chinese were two key developments. Long suppressed politically and culturally, the Chinese community re-emerged, attempting to rediscover its history, culture, and language. In this podcast, we have SMU's assistant professor of Asian studies, Hun Changyao, who has been a scholar of the Chinese diaspora and had long sought to understand the enigma that the Chinese in Indonesia were caught in. His research work looks into identity and minority issues, such as identity and cultural politics. Ethnic and racial studies, and multicultural education and religion in contemporary Indonesia. Thank you for speaking with us, Professor. Professor Hun, you were born in Malaysia, raised in Brunei, and educated in Western Australia. As an ethnic Chinese Southeast Asian, how has it influenced your research, which largely looks into identity and minority issues? Well, I think my own very diverse background has everything to do with my research. Uh, in fact, I think all research are somehow informed by the researchers' own background or their own experience,、um, you know, somewhere or the other.、Uh, my own experience as a diasporic Chinese, I'm third generation Chinese、um, who have resided in Brunei, but I was born in Malaysia、uh, because of citizenship issues. A lot of my peers who are Chinese in Brunei do not get citizenship, so my、uh, parents decided to go over to Malaysia to give birth to me. So I'm, I'm a Malaysian citizen. Um, but we reside in Brunei. I'm a Brunei permanent resident, and so I suppose my own experience has informed me about the experience of being a minority,、uh, an ethnic minority, and I also happen to be a Christian, a religious minority as well. And so when I started encountering Chinese Indonesians during my school days in Australia, where I went to study,、um, I found that their stories and their experience are actually quite interesting, and they are quite different from mine.、Um, Because、uh, at the very least, you know, I went to a Chinese school, so I could speak and read Chinese.、Um, I retain my Chinese name, and I am quite、um, familiar with a lot of Chinese um, um, festivals and also Chinese culture.、Um, but a lot of my peers, my friends,、um, who are Chinese Indonesians, where I met in Australia, have had no idea about Chinese language, culture, practices,、um, festivals, and they don't even have Chinese names. So that really got me interested. And during a trip、um, that I had right after the fall of Suharto, I think it was in 1999, when I went to Jakarta、uh, with a friend during the summer vacation, it really opened my eye to see how different、um, Chinese in Indonesia were compared to to my own experience as a Chinese in Brunei. Your book, Chinese Identity in Post Suharto Indonesia: Culture, Politics, and Media, is highly regarded by academics. Who say it provides a comprehensive view of ethnic and religious identity in Indonesia? What did you discover in the course of doing research for this book? Well, the experience in doing research for the book、uh, involved a one-year stint of doing fieldwork in Jakarta. 
So I was 23 years old at that time. So I packed up and then uh, lived in Jakarta in the center of the city, rented a room. And it was a hell of an experience, really. Being a, a very young, adventurous guy living in a large city. And of course, you know, uh, during my training uh, in Australia, I was exposed. Uh, I actually took Indonesian language, so I could speak pretty good Bahasa Indonesia at that time. In the course of my living in, in Jakarta, uh, that has improved a great deal. And, and my um, ability to speak Chinese as well allowed me access into the older generation Chinese community who had for many decades prohibited from using Chinese. So I sort of gave them a lot of comfort and familiarity when they started speaking Chinese with me. Uh, with the younger generation informants, uh, it was my Indonesian and my Jakartan Indonesian ability um, that actually got them really comfortable with me. So my informants are mainly middle class Chinese that range from um, younger generation to older generation. And I was able to understand uh, some of the different experiences that this different age group had. And also, after the fall of Suharto, where I focused my research on, there was a resurgence of Chinese identity. Well, that sort of uh, was a result of democratization in Indonesia at large. So we see that Chinese language and culture, which was banned for about three decades, were now suddenly al allowed to flourish. Uh, there was an open public sphere that allowed them to um, allow the younger generation to recover their ethnic identity. So it was very exciting time for me. And, and my research sort of looked at how um, there was this disconnect between the older generation who had a certain version of Chineseness that they want to uh, revive and the younger generation who had a markedly very different experience from their older counterparts. So the way in which they identify themselves um, as Chinese is very different. They don't speak a word of Chinese. They don't eat Chinese food. They don't celebrate Chinese New Year even. They don't have Chinese name. So to them, Chineseness is more about a class identity or even a religious identity. A lot of them are Christians. A lot of them are Buddhists. So that sort of differentiated them from uh, some of the lower class and Muslim uh, majority Indonesian. And that made them Chinese. Now, almost two decades on, how do you see the Indonesian Chinese identity transforming? And what's the potential for greater change? Absolutely. The Chinese Indonesian identity is continuing uh, to transform with not just the opening of Indonesia um, and also with the geopolitical rise of China. So we see a uh, rise of China has certain influence on the Chinese overseas at large in Southeast Asia that has firstly increased the interest in Chinese language um, because to be able to speak Chinese language will allow a person to tap into a large market in China. So that has a tremendous impact on Indonesia where we see Chinese language pursued has increased a lot right over the past uh, two decades. And uh, we see that uh, there were repugments of certain discriminatory laws against the Chinese since the fall of Suharto. So Chinese themselves worked very hard to lobby for changes politically. And so a lot of discriminatory laws have been repealed and also their citizenship rights have been restored over the past decade. So we see a lot of improvements in terms of their legal uh, aspect of their identity. And we see that the Chinese in Indonesia has also made a lot of progress in political sphere. Uh, we see that the current um, governor of Jakarta is a Chinese Christian, and, and that is unprecedented in Indonesia. And that also marks 
uh, certain kind of progress. And even though there were still a lot of challenges that's faced by the current governor, but I think psychologically, uh, to have Chinese in political leadership has changed the scene for the Chinese in Indonesia at large. Do you think that's a positive development? I think that's a good thing because for the past three and a half decades during Suharto's rule, the Chinese have received very little representations in the public sphere. The only kind of representations that they have in the media is one of which they are corrupt, they are rich, and they are business people. So that form the kind of stereotypes in the public um, and among the psyche of normal everyday Indonesians that the Chinese are rich, um, they are exclusive, and they do not want to mix or assimilate. And so now with Chinese venturing into uh, more different spheres, different occupations, including in politics, I think that will change the psyche of Indonesians' perception of the Chinese, and that will bring more positive impact for time to come. How has your research changed your own perceptions about the Chinese in Indonesia compared to those in Singapore and perhaps in Malaysia? My research has changed my perception on Chineseness as a whole very, very much. As I say, you know, I came from a Chinese school. I was Chinese educated. And being part of a Chinese diaspora, there are a lot of cultural aspects that we hold a lot more firmly compared to perhaps Chinese in China because they just don't have the reason to do so, right? They can take their identity, their culture for granted. But as a minority, uh, most Chinese community overseas will have to hold on something that that define their identity. Now, so I grew up um, having a very fixed notion of Chineseness and being very much um, culturally uh, chauvinistic myself. And, and the perception of myself on Chineseness is one that is unchangeable, that is inborn, that's defined by your blood, and that's essentialist. And I think that has changed in the course of my research in Indonesia, dealing with and encountering with Chinese who have no traces of Chineseness in terms of culture uh, or language. And, but then they still identify as Chinese just because they were not accepted as Indonesian. Um, being excluded, being othered by the mainstream society made them Chinese. And that really changed my perception of what Chineseness is about. And so now I adopt a more flexible view of Chineseness, of identity in general. Uh, it's a non-essentialist one that I, I believe that identity changes and it continues to change depending on our circumstances, depending who our other is, depending on politics. And so in terms of the identity of Chinese Indonesians, They are very different from um, Chinese in Singapore or Malaysia because of the political circumstances that they were in. But I think now with the opening up of Indonesia and with the rise of China, it does seem like there's a revival of general interest in China and Chinese language, not just in Indonesia, but also in the region. So look at Thailand and also the Philippines, look at similar kind of phenomenon. So I think, you know, that could actually define certain kind of convergence in the attitude towards China uh, in the future. Let's talk about some of your other research interests. Could you share with us what you're currently working on? My current research has branched out from just looking at the Chinese minority to other um, aspects of minority politics in Indonesia, especially uh, on the uh, religious minorities. So I have been doing research on the Christians minority in Indonesia for the past couple of years. I looked at the diversity within this population. I look at uh, some of the doctrinal differences. 
uh, as well as political differences. And I look at, most importantly, their relationship with the majority, especially with the Muslims. So how do they negotiate a space in Indonesia? How do they circumvent some of the restrictions in the laws in Indonesia as a religious minority? How do they react to the growing uh, intolerance, especially religious intolerance in Indonesia? And how do they react to the global anxiety of religion uh, in general, or fundamentalism? And, and how do the Christians actually tap into a global movement of especially the Pentecostals, you know, the global movement of evangelism. So, so that covers my, my current research. Well, I think religion has become a fault line in many places in the world, and opinions and also practices of religion have become very polarized over the past decade and a half, especially we're talking about post-911 world. What really got me interested is a lot of practices that were carried out in the name of religion, whether they are condoned by religion or whether they are uh, results of certain political and social situation. But then what was interesting is that how religion can galvanize such forces, religion can mobilize people to come together to identify as important uh, identity. And so when people are galvanized to identify with a certain cause that is so close to their heart, we see potential conflicts could happen. And that got me interested to look at how identity operates within the religious sphere. Thank you, Professor. Thank you.